Hi everyone, I'm Suzanne Delahunty and this is Freedom Hunters, a podcast about inspiring people who have escaped the rat race and found freedom in their dream career. We talk about their career journeys, the challenges they've faced along the way and what success means for them now that they're doing what they love. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Bola Marquis, founder of Oaken, an African-inspired beachwear brand that is stocked in the likes of Browns, Matches and Mr. Porter. Bola was born in Senegal and grew up between Nigeria and the UK before settling in London. He started out his career in IT program management in industries such as oil and gas, travel and advertising. However, it was his creative flair and entrepreneurial spirit that led him to leave it behind, although not entirely, more on that later, to start up his hugely successful beachwear brand, Oaken. Bola draws his inspiration from cultures across the African continent and distills them into Oaken's colourful and vibrantly designed men's swim shorts. The Oaken Instagram account, at Oaken Beachwear, is well worth following. It's full of idyllic African beaches and beautiful men in beautiful swimming shorts. And that is always a welcome addition to my Instagram feed. Bola is a force to be reckoned with. He's driven, focused, and totally passionate about what he does. When I met with Bola, we talked about his career journey, the joys of serendipity, dealing with failures, and Bola's unique take on job versus passion. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Freedom Hunters. Hi, Bola. Welcome to Freedom Hunters. Hey, Suzanne. Great to be here. So you grew up in Lagos. Can you tell me what that was like? Well, I grew up between Lagos and London. Um, and yeah, the Lagos I grew up in is, was uh, very, very different to the Lagos of now. Um, it's hard to believe because Lagos is one of the capital cities, well, mega cities of, of the world. I think it's about close to 18 million people um, right now. It's got incredible traffic jams. It's got a, an amazing energy, which I feel is not really, it's hard to find anywhere else in the world. Um, it's incredibly chaotic. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's a mess, frankly. But the the energy of the people and the humor of Leg- Lagosians, I think, is what I really really miss the most. Um, we 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 we're just go getting, very fast paced. We don't really kind of um, yeah. We don't really wait for it. We don't dull, as, yeah. as, as, as I like to say in Lagos. Um, but I um I left um Nigeria when I was. Uh, AIDS to come to school in, in the UK and then I started going backwards and forwards between Lagos and London. So I grew up between the two. So I, I, I define myself as a Londoner as much as Lagos, a Lagosian. Um, but like I said, the Lago, Lagos I grew up in was, was, was actually quite quiet, funnily enough. I grew up in a park called Victoria Island and, and then outside Lagos as well. But it was, it was very, it, it's weird to say in a, in, a, in a city that has millions and millions of people, but I, we all kind of like all knew each other in the Lagos that I grew up in. It was kind of like a, um, you know, relatively well-to-do and uh, um, interesting environment, let's put it that way. So was it very different when you got to London? Culture shock. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, it was. It was. I, I think that when you do things when you're quite young, you adjust very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's something that maybe will come up a, li- a little bit later. But I, th- I think that... Um, I adjust pretty quickly to whatever environment that I'm in, wherever I'm traveling to. And, and that comes from, 
that comes from being uprooted at a very early age. I was actually born in Dakar in Senegal. Mm. And I, uh, but then I took my first flight when I was about three weeks old <laughs> to, to Lagos. So, so I, I, I started moving very, very early indeed. Um, and then from Lagos, I went to school outside of London, actually. I went to school in Canterbury and Kent. Well, I went to school in Kent. Um, so going from hustle and bustle of Lagos, even as, a, as an eight-year-old, uh, you know, I definitely, and to the greens and um, outdoors, uh, sort of like uh, English country life in the, in, the, in the Kent countryside. Very, very, very different. Yeah. And when you were at school, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, so I wanted to be probably, funnily enough, I wanted to be like, a, I wanted to be a farmer first. Um, yeah, so it's always been, uh, I think David Attenborough's got my, my dream job when I was a kid. So I wanted to be a marine biologist or a farmer, or I, I was always into nature, animals, wildlife, um, as a child, that, that, that was always a passion. Um, and then, uh, and, and art kind of came a little bit along with that. So if I look at any of the drawings or paintings I did as a kid, they were always of animals, mm. um, always of wildlife. And um, and this, the sea, funnily enough, another recurring theme, but I was very much more into um, marine. Um, uh, biology was by far and away my favourite subject at school. So what led from that to then you first got into IT, is that right? Seems to me a fairly natural progression. But um, I, I went into sciences. From having a love for nature, I went into science. Mm -hmm. So I, I did um, biology, chemistry at A-levels and maths. Um, and I I thought I'd probably have more of a corporate career at the time, but I wanted to, to still stay within the realms of, of, of science. Um, so I, I, I studied management with, with chemistry and I thought I was going to be like a biochemical engineer or something like that, potentially. And then it was the days, it was kind of like the beginning of days of people starting to get into IT seriously as a profession. And, and I just liked the idea that I was doing something that my dad didn't understand. <laughs> yeah. you know, so no, no parental, Maybe. parental advice. Yeah. So that was at university you did yeah. science and yeah. management. Yeah. Where was that in the UK? In London. I went yeah. to Imperial. Okay. And then when you finished your studies, mm -hmm. where did you start out? What was your first, like inverted commas, proper job? <laughs> My first proper job was that I was an analyst. I was an analyst at a company called Alliance Gas, which wasn't around for very long, but it was just at the beginning of the deregulation of the gas industry. So at that time, when I came to England, everything was a, um, was a state monopolies. So I started as an analyst, um, uh, and in those days, an analyst was just anybody junior that was moving paper from left to right. Um, and I was working on signing up contracts and things like that. Um, pretty much the first proper job I remember is actually Statoil, um, less so, less so the Alliance. Um, and, and I was, um, I was, just, uh, uh, again, I was working, I was actually working in customer services in, in at Statoil, but I was training at the side to be a systems analyst because I thought I'd go into IT. That was my route to go into IT and code or, um, you know, do SQL, DBA and that kind of stuff, which is database administration. 
then realized very quickly that it was way even for, for, for me it was way too boring and I didn't have the I, I, I didn't have the sort of the the attention span to kind of be a coder or be a programmer I could learn I could always learn enough to 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 understand it and to be able to do it but then to do it all the time day in day out I think was was going to be an issue um so I I started there was an opportunity there was a project going on in the company and um, they were looking for um, project assistants and junior project managers and a junior project manager came role came up and I thought that sounds great I get to tell people what to do and make sure they do it and that's how I got into project management. So you then moved your way uh, moved your way up doing Mm -hmm. IT program management into different industries? Yeah so so I joined SDA Travel uh, in August um, of August 11 uh, and a month after September 11 happened I just joined the travel industry and then September 11th happened and you can imagine what happened there I remember Mm. very vividly um, staring at that and just in complete shock um, uh, at the office and then you know we suddenly are thinking hold on a second I've just gone into an industry that is just going to be decimated by this and, you know, student travel before, you know, when you always get into a place and they always tell you about the good old days and how it used to be, that, you know, get upgrades, we could blag upgrades, you could try travel around the world for like, you know, cheap student tickets, whatever. I didn't get any of that. <laughs> that that stuff was all gone by the time we got there. We got there and all it was after that was 9-11, then it was SARS and then it was, you know, then it was something else and then it was something else. And there was a series of, if it felt like the world has sort of like changed as well and there's sort of like a loss of innocence. And then pretty much I joined at 9-11 and I left at um, just before the, the financial crash of 2008. <laughs> oh my God. So this is like really bad. I'm like <laughs> the milestones of my life, but not really, um, not really kind of like great ones. But just before the 2008 crash was when I'd made the decision I, um, uh, um, t- to to go contracting, which was actually actually no before that was to was to take a sabbatical. Um, in 2007, I decided to take a, take a sabbatical. It was a few years after my father had passed, and I'd been really doing systems implementations, traveling around the world. So having gone all around the world, um, I decided to go to France for, uh, I went to Paris for for about a month. And um, I, and I went to, this weird, I guess, like, because I've always studied French in the background. And so I decided to do, um, to do a course at the Sorbonne. Um, and I did four weeks language course at the Sorbonne in, in, in the summer. Then came back to London. The, the interesting thing, I, I, you know, having um, left SDA travel, taking the sabbatical, which is the first time I've taken a break of any kind in sort of like 10 years, and I recommend everybody should do so. Um, I then, I knew I was never going to go back to a permanent job. I was, I was always going, I, I, contracting was a thing. I thought, right, I'm going to contract. I'll try that out. But I knew I wasn't going to go back to, to working nine to five permanently. And what was behind that? Was it because you had some sort of creative streak and idea and passion going on? With Was that, did that play into that decision or was it just a lifestyle thing for you? I think it was more of a lifestyle thing. I think the two things um, operate, uh, and, and I was thinking about this actually a little bit earlier on. Um, I think your career and your dream, or your job and your passion, um, 
they don't necessarily my job has hasn't actually changed my passion and my dream was to have a brand mm. that said something and that said something specifically in this case about uh, uh, an african heritage my job is to deliver difficult projects and that job hasn't changed from program <laughs> management days till brand days that so sometimes that your your job is your your sort of your corporate skill um and you will always use that you will use that in service of your passion you will use that in service of your 9 to 5 but that's the that's the sort of the skill that you have which is very very different to what your dream is and my dream is to, to to have a brand and that was that was as a very very dear sister friend of mine reminded me that this is you know this is not just something that you just started 6 years ago this is something that i started when i was a kid mm. i found i found a similar thing with my background in law mm. and working for media companies so as a lawyer i'd be sitting in on their content strategy meetings i'd be reviewing advertising copy and Correcting. drafting yeah. you know drafting some advertising copy myself in order to get around certain legal issues and that all has come into what I'm, where I'm going now mm. with content creation and building a media platform. I have yep. to say, it's uh, amazing when you think back. Well, it was never wasted or that experience. Nothing is in life is ever wasted. I think. I think if anybody ever feels that they have, then it's it's it's. It, I think that's actually quite tragic. I think everything, and this seems to be from the more I uncover about entrepreneurism and the journey, it. it it's it's a journey of life. So it's like saying, oh, I wasted my time, my that bit of my life doing this. And actually, I didn't. I'm doing something today right now. I am migrating to a new back office system from, um, from the old one that I had, and it's ERP. And I used to do this professionally as a project manager. I used to do this for blue chip companies all around the world. Now I'm doing it for my own. I just happen to be doing it for my own business and I'm not even thinking about it. And I, I was kind of doing it in my sleep. Every single thing, it might not, you might not realize it at the time, you might not be, but but everything should be and could be of service to you at any point in your life. Yeah, nothing, I, don't, I really don't think anything is ever wasted. And I'm actually quite grateful for the, the corporate experience that I had. Tell me about how you first conceived of the idea or the concept that is now Oaken? Um, so that was a relatively simple one, if you put it in the context of the, that actually ever since going back to school, anybody that knows me, I've always wanted to have a cre creative expression. That creative expression these days is now called a brand. It was before it was screen printing t-shirts and then it, uh, and now it's African print swimwear. In between, there was um, doing the interior design of a friend's spa in, in, in West London. And, and that kind of got my creative sort of juices flowing again. And I was working on a leather goods brand was actually what I was going to bring to market. And I thought, yeah, this is what I want. I like accessories um, and I'm going to do men's accessories. for. And, you know, I like Macs and iPads and things like that. So I'm going to do accessories for Macs and iPads and things like that. Um, and that's that's what that was the brand that was going to it was called Slow Lux. Oh, I like that uh, it's name. It's a really cool name. Nobody's still... Whilst working on this brand, I was going to Lagos a lot. 
uh, and I was going to Lagos in a very different different capacity. Um, I, again, my father had passed at that time, so I wasn't really going. Typically, when you go back, you're going to see your family um, and you haven't seen them for, for a while. So you spend all of your time. I'd spend all of my time with my dad, pretty much. Um, and now I was going and socializing more and just getting out into society more and hanging out with friends. A lot of my friends had that I'd grown to school with in, in the UK had gone back. Um, so weekends, we'd go to beach clubs um, and... And I and I also at the same time I was noticing a lot of um, African print that was being worn by the women in a way that was more contemporary, not in the way that you know like our aunties and grandmas, uh, well let's say aunties anyway and mums were wearing, and it was more of a fashion item. And it's like you know, um, when I was growing up. Uh, as as a teenager, I when I went back, I would wear traditional, as we call it, traditional wear, native wear, and most of my friends would wear Western. Uh, and all of a sudden, that as they went back and were were more, you know, living their lives in Lagos and and, and growing up there, I I started to notice that that sort of like changed now, and they were all wearing sort of like more traditional wear because that's just what you do, and it's more comfortable anyway. Describe traditional wear. Um, so it's the vibrant African print that people see, certainly for the women. Um, we call it Ankara, um, uh, which is actually Dutch wax of Indonesian 16th century origin that ended up in Africa because of trading. And we liked it. The Europeans didn't market, didn't really take to it so much at the time. And it became a thing in Africa. But it's actually in, it inspired originally by Indonesian batik. It was discovered by the Dutch. So we have um, we have that the printed fabrics. But then we also have our more traditional fabrics as well that we wear. That's like more plain stuff. But typically it's, you know, a, a, a long shirt and a, and, a, and a trousers. So you notice your friends starting to wear this more and more? I, I think that culturally we all do. We all do and we all did. But. I remember that when I was younger that I used to be one of I used to be the ones that the one of the ones that used to wear it more um and and you know you when you're younger you don't really dress like your parents right mm. and then when you grow older you dress like your parents <laughs> kind of <laughs> maybe maybe not you you're quite you're quite you've got a great blog and a great sense of style so you know I think that, that might be a, diff, a bit of a different um story um but uh yeah I just noticed that that I noticed that there were there was more um, African dress, let's just put it that way, that was being worn by younger generations in Lagos rather than more Western-based dress. So it was more of a balance. And I'm talking principally about women's wear here. Um, uh, so there's less of a reliance on just wearing Western clothing. I mean, everybody has a tailor. Everybody has things made. Um, it's a very different culture as well. So it's not it's not a, you know, go to the shop and buy stuff. We would tend to buy stuff when we traveled. We'd buy, you know, people would travel for summer holidays and they'd buy stuff abroad. Whereas in Lagos, you get your clothes made. So you buy fabric and you get your clothes made. That's, that's, that's a very standard thing. So you have different kinds of fabrics, different kinds of things that you'd wear for occasions, um, certain prints and colors that are more feminine and prints of colors that are more masculine so in a sense like we, we grew up and this is not just anything that's unique to me anybody nigerian would or even west african would recognize what i'm saying so we grow up already with that in the dna so for me to then 
jump from that and and say, hmm, nobody's thought about using African prints in men's, in swimwear, for example. And then I looked at it and I was always coming from a menswear point of view because I could see that people were doing a lot more on the women's wear side. So I wouldn't be surprised if somebody had made it into bikinis or stuff like that. But, you know, I was looking at brands at the time and, I, you know, I noticed that swimwear was a, was a category and I, and I was going to, to Lagos and spending more time around the water and around the beach, not necessarily in it. Um, and I noticed that, you know, the, the women had amazing designer swimwear even if it's the caftans or the cover-ups or the wraps and stuff like that. And the guys would be like, polo shirt, chinos, very boring. Mm. I thought, what's, there's nothing going on for the guys here. There's nothing sort of like equivalent that sort of matches what the women are sort of like dressing up on that more resorty sort of like way. So the guys would look no different to whether they were going to golf than whether they were going to a beach, whereas women would look completely different when they're going to on a holiday or on a beach. And, whatever. and that's what started getting me thinking. I knew that there was a there was an opportunity and, and there were more sort of middle class Africans that were traveling abroad. And I knew that also that there was more of an interest from you know what we call abroad in african fashion um there was just more of a lifestyle and then that's that's kind of how i came up with the idea i've always been interested along with biology the other thing i was obsessed about when i was a kid was fashion very weird sort of i'm 50 50 left brain right brain but i was obsessed with i loved nature and i loved fashion when i was a kid how did you go about changing your career? Because when you had this idea, mm-hmm. you were still working as a freelancer, program yeah, so management. I was just contracting. Yeah. How did you go about changing and from, from that point to then actually running your own business? Oof. First of all, was the, I guess, was just the was obviously having the idea. Um, and then taking a sort of a practical step and saying, there's something that you say in your mind, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give it a shot. And sometimes, somehow, you know, the universe also is saying, ah, okay, finally, I'll <laughs> give you a hand. Um, and that's what they call serendipity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I told my boss at the time uh, that I would be, I w- had a project that I was working on, a personal project I was working on, and I want a day a week for that. Um, and I felt that I could still do the project program management, but have a day to do this on the side. Um, and of course, you can't just allocate just that one sort of like day, but it's in terms of like hours, then it would mean that maybe, you know, spread over a week or whatever, or work from home or, or whatever. So that that was the understanding. And pretty much as soon as I'd sort of made said that as well, um, all of these things kind of started to happen. Um, I told friends about it, um, close friends I've known from school. Um, and at one of them at the time had... His girlfriend was a swimwear designer, which was like, okay. So I had a lot of friends around fashion. Uh, sorry, I had a lot of friends in fashion, actually, not just around fashion. A lot of friends in fashion at the time. They all knew that I liked fashion. We all kind of like grew up on the same sort of influences as well. You, know, you can't sort of be a London person and not like fashion. You know, mm. It's just something that this is a city this is, that, that lives and breathes it in a, in a different kind of way. Um, and as does Lagos, actually. Um, Lagos is like a incredible style capital of the world. Mm. Um, 
it, that, that's just if you're looking at the next rank of cities that are, that really represent the emerging nature of uh a fashion then i would say you look at seoul i'd say you look at lagos i'd say you look at you know other places that are really kind of like representing as well um Joburg. but back to your career transition Tran- so the transition was yeah so the transition was was me telling my um the it director at the time that i wanted to do four days a week um telling my friends that i had an idea uh, as soon as i told them that, I was really lucky that the, the 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 friends that were in fashion told me it was a good idea, um, and I think maybe unusually with my entrepreneurial story is because one I'm started I started it in my forties um, is that I didn't get the 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 sort of let's say the naysayers and um, so I can't really speak to to people other than just saying just go for it. You know, that saying, oh, you know, your family is not not going to, you know, get get it or your friends don't think it's a good idea or whatever. I actually, frankly, had the opposite. Um, all of my friends backed me and said, that, you know, you go ahead and give it a go. And, you know, here's a contact here and here's a contact there. So I was really, really lucky with that. So pretty soon after that, I got um, an email randomly from um, from a short courses that, that I did at University of the Arts of London saying how to set up and run your own fashion business. I was like, <laughs> okay, the universe is really with me on this No, that's one. a sign. It really was. I did the course. Um, it was a two-week, um, two, sorry, it was a two-day course over a weekend. And it was met, it was pitched at people who had no, you know, idea of the, the fashion industry. And um, so you Clearly, it would be emerging designers, people who were doing it on the side, maybe students, uh, and introducing you to facets. So there was somebody on marketing, there was somebody on on design, there was somebody on finance, and there was just a series of workshops over two days. And then at the end of the two days, you would pitch your brand or your idea, and um, and and we did that. I pitched the idea. I came second. The question that I was trying to address with this brand is why isn't there any kind of African expression in international fashion? That's 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 my mm. that's what I'm trying to answer. Um, and I still feel like I haven't quite cracked it. Well, I'm, but I know I haven't quite cracked it. So, but you have to do recognize how far you've come. You know, we're we're stocked in thirty countries around the world. Um, we're the first African brand stocked on Mr. Porter. So. From a, from a, from an industry recognition point of view, I'm really, really, really chuffed with what we've been able yeah. to do over the past few years, and really excited about what's coming up next year. So, at what point was it that you were able to transition, transition, and quit the put the freelancing IT work behind you and dedicate all your time to your so, brand? So, to use an IT term, I, I parallel ran um the 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 side project which is my which is which is Oakland and um my day job I did that for effectively nine months so, and that's about as much time because things really happened really really quickly after the course I met somebody who helped me with the collection um I had and and in about six months I was presenting my first collection in Paris again with a lot of serendipity that I can't even begin to go into it'd be here for ages. Um but through really just being on the right path, um I ended up presenting the collection um in Paris at men's men's season summer thirteen. Wow. It was a simple collection, this one one short shape 
actually two short shapes which I've which I've always had, um, and thirteen pairs of shorts. It's it's quite a common um, fashion story to start off with a mono product and then build a lifestyle around it, and hopefully I'll be able to do that. Um, but yeah, so I ended up doing the the salon in in, in Paris. We were really really lucky again. I had a rail that was positioned just behind where the um where the 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 buyers coming in would would sign up on their on and they would just see the shorts so we were really yeah very very lucky um and got um some i got enough business cards from buyers from amazing stores to to give me the confidence that actually we we have something by the end of the season in september we had a few orders Reality between when you're very excited and, you know, somebody gives you a business card at, at, a, at a trade show and asks you to send your price list and your catalogue and all this kind of stuff. Between that, between that and actually securing an order is a very, still a very long way. Um, but then by the end of summer, I, um, yeah, there was enough to kind of think, okay, this is, this is, this might be something. I started going to a lot of networking events, started to find out about raising capital for, for businesses, um, started to understand about the kind of capital that you could raise. And there was a big push for entrepreneurism because don't forget that we're now post 2008 and when, um, uh, we're well past that, but, um, but there was a big, um, Trap, uh, movement, I would say, away from the day job to a lot of people now following their, their passion project because of the financial crash. Mm. I had already mentally adjusted my mind to that because I went p- contracting when everybody was like, why on earth would you give up a permanent job to go contracting? And then, you know, a few years later, everybody could, could see that there is no such thing as job security. And I think that the sort of the final straw was when... You know, there'll be a, and I always think it's important that people use their pain points to as signposts to move on. And they, they got to a point where they were, they're doing stressful IT projects, um, having sort of program management responsibility, managing the budgets, making sure they delivered, making sure people were happy. I had finished a project in Paris that, that was, that was, you know, complicated. And, um, mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was doing a, 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 pro, a project in England, which meant that I wouldn't have to, there was no travel. So there was no upside for me. Um, and then, you know, by, my boss changed as well. And I had a new boss and I just thought this, yeah, this it's now or never. Give it a shot. All the signs were telling you. Yeah. It's time. time. Yeah. So now that you've been running your business for two, oh no. It's now six years. Six years. Has your experience as a business owner changed how you deal with failures? Yes. Uh, yeah, 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 it does. For, for, I guess for, and this is going to be, I think this is, this is a very important part of the founder story, um, which um, should be talked about more and men should talk about, men should just talk about failure more in general for stop. Mm. Uh, that I think that's yes. that's just the overarching thing. Men should be allowed to talk more about failure. Full stop. Uh, so I would rather um, broaden that question, rather whether it's whether it's in your relationship, whether it's you as a father, whether it's you as a son, whether it's 
you know, whether it's in your, with money or whatever, we, sh we need to talk and, you know, big pitch for sort of mental, men's mental awareness, which I think is was, is, was a topic that finally has come to the fore this year, which hadn't done. You, you need to tear off the plaster as quickly as possible. Um, and, and, and you need to, you need to do it, you need to do it because if you, you imagine that when you, when you put the plaster over a wound and it needs to, it needs to, you need the air to heal and for that scar to actually form and for it to kind of like, you know, like, and also if you're tearing it off really, really slowly, you're just prolonging the pain and it's just like, all right, you just need to just tear it off. So I think the first time you do it, the feeling of failure, um, comes and persists for much longer than the actual fact. The fact is like a, a five minute thing that happens and you're over it. But the feeling that guys punish themselves through just that, that's the tearing off the plaster really slowly. So it's like you're, you're beating yourself oh, up over just much. a single moment. Yes. The actual point is like again i think i mentioned this before it's like you know you open the door and you walk through it mm. but you if you just take forever to, to like and and that's that's my experience um it took me a year to deal with the fact that that the profits were the weren't coming the the brand wasn't skyrocketing you know all of these various things that i'd that you know that that age of innocence of the first three years is kind of like like gone and then um, and frankly, I didn't realize at the time, but there were there's some chunky things that I was dealing with. That one, I had an, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time raising money for the business, which is something again that, that people should talk about. And and um, and I was quite successful in some ways, and in some ways, I wasn't. You know, um, and there were rounds that I lost. Lost. I, I failed to secure investment at a very critical point in time for the business. Um, and that took me a long time and the repercussion, the impact and, uh, and the decisions I made during that process, which not necessarily the smartest ones, again, beating yourself up for a very long time. Yeah, is, is just, it doesn't help anybody. When you trip and you fall, you know, it's all about how quickly you get up and then you look at where you tripped, not where you fell. So that's those are the those are the two things. When you look back, you say like, ah, that's where I made the mistake. It's not where you landed. It's like ah, now I'm like, I'm at rock bottom. No, I landed at rock bottom, but I landed at rock bottom because I made a mistake a couple of, you know, months ago by overspending on this and not keeping an eye on the cash flow and 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 being over optimistic on, on top line. You know, all of this kind of that, those are the mistakes. For you know, if you're naturally a, a quick bouncer up uh, kind of person, then great. Um, for all of all of the ninety nine percent of people who aren't, once you've been through this once, you will not do it again. I think mm -hmm. you might make other, you'll definitely make other mistakes, but I think you just get you you learn. Um, you know, again, success and failure. None, none, none is final and none is fatal. I think it's like failure isn't fatal and success isn't final. Um, once you've learned that, the quicker you peel off the plaster and and you know allow the the wound to heal and move on, then it, it, you actually start to see the positives. Tell me, what advice would you give to someone who may not love the job they're doing, but they want to pursue a passion? I go back to that thing that I said earlier. Um, your job and your passion, they don't have to be the same thing. Um, and I think 
when you're doing a job that's not your true job, that's when I think it's challenging. So, and I say that, I mean, like, let's say you like to write, but you're having to do a job that involves a lot of numbers. That's where, so I think your job is like your skill set. Um, and, and then your passion is something else. So they don't, I don't necessarily think that you have to, you know, to, 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 that you have to have that all singing, all dancing job that gives you everything. I don't think it's necessarily about that. Um, but then the other thing I would say is that there's, there is a point where you will realize that you are just not motivated, not, um, and then that, that, that pain, when it comes to that point where you have to move, you should move. Mm. Um, if you have something that you're excited by, then do it. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that you should stop doing the, you know, the thing that keeps the roof over your head. And yeah. so I, I, I think, I think I, I'm, I'm trying to balance it out from basically saying, just do it. But that doesn't mean that you have to leave your day job. Mm. The decision of when your passion becomes your, your, your all-encompassing is a very different decision from just deciding to follow your passion. You can follow your passion. It, you, work from nine to, you work from nine to five, right? Or nine to six. What are you doing from five to nine? You can do both. You know, and then, and I think that you should do both. Um, I, I, it's it's foolhardy to just think that you, it's foolhardy to think that the first thing you do will be a success. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a refreshing way to look at it because I think there's there's a lot of hype around do your dream job. Yeah, yeah, but even your dream job is going to have elements that you don't love. You know, yeah. you're still going to have to do your accounts or, you know, at least get your it, head around them. It, the, what, what, um, even the most creative and fun part of what you would want to do can become just another job. So how you avoid that being the case is actually quite tricky. Um, and, and, and I mean, if you, and you can see it, you can look at it like top sports stars, performers, you know, they're, they're, whoever it is that you are quote unquote living the life, at some stage, it becomes a job for them as well. So, I th I I think that I that's why I'm very very careful with the advice that mm -hmm. I give. I think it's very very personal, um, and I think that if you can separate your job from your passion and do both of them, as I now realize that my job in this world is to deliver different difficult things. I realize that my passion is to have a creative expression that is African. Those two things. I have always done and I will always do. So it's a way of making them coexist. And yes. if you can combine them, great. If you can't, then you just keep exactly. doing it. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And and unfortunately, it's not in your... Sometimes it's just not in your hands because you could give it all up and follow your passion and then your passion doesn't serve the world and the world is like, yeah, great, but mm. meh. But still do it, you know. Exactly. Just don't give up your day job. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly because it's not necessarily the first iteration that that that, that you know that, that the universe finally wants so the questions i ask all my guests are first what is success for you success is achieving what you set out to achieve success is also a state of is a state of mind but I think on a purely practical level maybe for me if you said 
when you do when you start off doing something you say well i want to do this because or this is what i want to get at the end and then you get somewhere and i think and and part of the the challenge is that we don't actually stop and take stock and think wow i did kind of like do that so um no i i said at some point i wasn't going to have a boss i was never going to have a boss that's success for me <laughs> from the day from from when i get up to when i go to bed i decide what i do i think that that for me was kind of like important it's driven by all of the necessary priorities of running a business but i think that was one level of success that i hadn't i i'm grateful for um and having a i wanted to have a global brand i have that that's another level of success i'm happy about i think success the most important thing is that you do the most important thing is actually that you ask yourself that question what is success for me mm. um i think part of unhappiness comes because people have not defined what success is for them and when you do that then you can be like okay this job is really not is it taking me towards that level of success or not is this passion taking me once you do that it, it starts you could start you, if you want better results you have to ask better questions mm-hmm. and i think that's one of the better questions you can ask yourself what is success for you yeah but you got to be completely honest with yourself that's oh, the truth yeah 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 we, we never mm-hmm. do that so that takes a while yeah totally so my second question is for your travel tip for mm. where you're from or where mm-hmm. your family is originally from. Mm-hmm. So let's say we're doing that for Lagos. Okay, this is probably a little bit of a plug for from um I stay uh, for the past 10 years now. I've stayed in a little guest house called Bugabiri Hotel. But it's the I feel like it's still the it's the hub of something that that re, that's probably the true spirit of Lagos. So there's all of the glitz and glamour but then Lagos is also incredibly creative um artistic and there's the hustle as well. Um and Bugabiri is um is a yeah it's a little art center gallery and guest house. You tend to get a lot of like journalists stay there and musicians stay there when they're kind of like doing stuff. Um rather than your more glitzier and glam places. Uh, it's it's kind of cool and funky and it does great food oh it sounds fabulous Paula thank you so much for coming on the podcast today it's been such a pleasure speaking with you thank you very much I thoroughly enjoyed it my first podcast actually okay thank you I hope you enjoyed this episode of Freedom Hunters and found inspiration in Paula's story for pursuing your own burning passion or kickstarting your side hustle Thank you for listening to Freedom Hunters. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to give the show a boost and help other people find it. And you can read more about what I'm passionate about on my website secondsister.com or by following me on Instagram at Suzanne Delahunty. Tune in on the 1st of every month when another inspiring guest will be sharing their story of how they found freedom in a career that they love.